you may remember a few weeks ago, um, we talked about uh, James' introduction to his concerns about the use of the tongue. And he told us that we should be very slow to speak, quick to listen, slow to get angry. And we all agree. And we say, yep, I, I wish I hadn't said that. We can think of many times when that was our heart's reaction to what we have just said. Well, James is not finished with the tongue, and so he carries on and gives a whole chapter. Actually, chapter 3 is about taming the tongue. And whereas we might have asked ourselves at certain times, why did I say that? Other times we might just say, where did that come from? You know, you might all of a sudden have blurted something out, and uh, maybe it has been in anger, maybe it has been, you know, with some other kind of emotion going on. But you ask yourself, where did that come from? That didn't even sound like me, or I wish that didn't sound like me. Apparently it did sound like me because I think I said it. So here's what James says in chapter 3. He says, not many of you should presume to be teachers, my brothers and sisters, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. We all stumble in many ways. Those who never are at fault in what they, what they say are perfect able to keep their whole body in check. When we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. Or take ships as an example. Although they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what great forests is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue is also a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole person, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by human beings, but no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse human beings who have made in, been made in God's image. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers and sisters, can a fig tree bear olives, or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. So carrying right along from what Susan has talked with us about already, I want to come today to the, just the big question of source. Where did that come from? And the question is answered by trying to address the source. Where, in fact, did that come from, what I said? Why did I say what I did? Where did it start? And from there, how did it work its way into what I was saying, what I was um, sort of spewing or venting or expressing in one way or another? I, I was thinking of two places that, that kind of set up the idea of source. Uh, the one is in the north of Israel, there's a place called Banyas. It was Caesarea Philippi, and it, it was actually the, the place where Peter made a remarkable claim about who Jesus was. But even today, it, it's a great place to go and visit because it's, um, it's, it's this large outcropping of rock, 
and there's water. There's a great big pool of water, a great big pond of water, or lake of water, you might say. And it is described as the source of the Jordan. So the Jordan River that then flows southward all the way down through the land of Israel um, begins at its source, at, at Banyas. Another place that I think of often is a place in, uh, in Uganda called, called Jinja. And Jinja um, has all through the town um, placards, signs, um, you know, shops with their names called this. But the word source is very much a part of the whole ethos of Jinja because Jinja is thought to be the source of the Nile. And it is one of the sources of the Nile, one of the sources of one of the Niles. And, and so the whole town is kind of oriented around that idea of being the source. It also is very much in the spiritual life of that town in Uganda. As they're right in the middle of, of, the, of the town, there's a coffee place, and it's called The Source. And it's a place that um, is run by Christians, and it helps fund various churches and ministries. And so it's a delight to go there and, and see in that part of the world that people have this notion of the source um, being kind of illustrated by the river that is being sourced. But it's also a place where people are trying to talk about the real source of life as they, as they follow Jesus. Well, I've brought up source because I really want to jump to the end of this chapter. Later on, we'll probably go back and look at some of the other parts of what James says to us. One of the most frightening verses in the Bible for people like me is, don't want to be a teacher so quickly because there's a more severe judgment. And in these days, with the, the disenchantment in in the world about the church and and about teachers in the church all the more is it pertinent for us to say let's be very careful um, being willing to be the person the spokesperson the visionary the teacher um, because you have to be very careful with the words you speak and you will be judged more strictly um, by what you what you speak james paints lovely word pictures um, that help us understand the answer to the question, where did this come from? So James says, do you not see that this is a problem, that one person can actually be a double source, that uh, what happens is that what issues from a person, you know, in terms of his or her words, um, comes from one place, presumably, and yet it, it's, it sort of seems to be double. How can it be that with the same tongue we bless God and curse human beings? How can, how can that possibly be true? And he says, have a look at nature, because there's nothing in nature that would replicate that. In fact, nature shows us some things that are very important for us to learn spiritually. So let me just show you four images of the way that James describes this whole thing. He begins as he talks about um, the source of, of you know, water, where he says, can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? 
And so here's a picture of, of a spring. And presumably, if, if you were to come across that spring, maybe you've been hiking in the mountains or something, and you dip down and you lap up a little of the water from the spring, you maybe know where it came from, and you can count on that being fresh water. You can count on it being clean water. You can count on it, if you know enough about what has happened upstream, about it being safe water for you to drink. And James says, yeah, look around you. When you notice in nature, the same spring doesn't have two outflows in terms of the, of the character of the water. And he's saying, but how is it that, that with us, we actually can have two outflows? How can this be? And he, he sort of holds the thing up to us and says, how can this be? Why is this so? And um, we can discover through the pages of Scripture very good answers to that very pertinent question. The second thing that James goes on to dwell on in terms of a picture is that he says this, My brothers and sisters, can a fig tree bear olives? Can a fig tree bear olives? And here he's going to the world of horticulture, and he's saying, that would be ridiculous, right? Suppose you come across something that, for all intents and purposes, looks like a fig tree. Suppose there were olives growing on that fig tree. You'd be shocked. You'd be astounded. You'd say, this could not be because um, olive trees aren't the same as fig trees. And again, James is pressing it home, and he's saying, and what about you? So he, he goes a little deeper into his use of these pictures from, nat- and from nature, and he, he not only points out the dilemma of you know, different outflows, but then he says something about the actual source, the fact that whatever is showing up should be indicative of what its source is. And so he, he goes to the fig tree and to the olive tree and says, if, if, if it's one character of tree, the fruit on that tree must inevitably be characteristic of, of that tree. We have, um, every year we try to grow sunflowers. We don't try to grow them. They fall from the bird feeder. And every now and then, they actually spring in the soil. And this year we've had a great crop of, I think, four sunflowers. Now they're in bloom. And the one that's right in front of the porch where I sit is about as tall as me. And I looked at that the other day and I thought, that began with one little sunflower seed. And yet, how can this be that this glorious flower, this huge flower, um, that is supported by this really vigorous stem, all began with a little seed? It's a marvel of, of what God has designed, what God has created and 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 to see that w- what comes out of what god has designed is something glorious that you know here's here's this beautiful flower and there's something i think that's in the way of a lesson as that flower turns towards the sun so all day long it'll begin looking for the sun as the sun rises it'll turn it'll literally turn its head towards the sun 
And to me, it's David saying the heavens declare the glory of God, right? The firmament. It's, it's everything around us declares something about the glory of God. And there's a picture of that. But it, 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 it just bears the truth that the thing that is sown will yield the fruit or the flower that you would expect. So James says, if you think about nature and you think about a fig tree, it's not going to have olives. And then he goes on, and very similarly, he says, and the other way around, if you have a fig tree, it won't have olives. If you have an olive tree, it won't have figs. Um, what is inside is what's going to be shown on the outside. What is in the seed is going to be shown in the flower. It's going to be shown in the fruit. And then finally, he returns to the image again of water. And he says, um, you don't expect to get fresh water from salt. So if you go to the seashore um, and, and get a drink of a wave coming in, it's not a delightful, refreshing drink, is it? It is something that kind of burns and, and scolds on its way down. You know, we, we imagine all these films, uh, movies of, of people that are drowning in the high seas, and, you know, it is water, water everywhere, not a drop to drink. And we would say that that's exactly true. A notion is not somewhere that you would sound, look for fresh water. So there are some amazing projects going on in the world in desalinization where by scientific effort, we're able to change salt water into fresh water. We're, we're able to get the salt out of salt water to produce fresh water. But even that is an, an illustration where you'd say, but you don't just go and take gallons of salt water and say that's good for drinking because it's not. And James says, so... What is it with us? When we look at nature, nature is very explicit in telling us that one thing at its source would not ever have an outflow into um, not only different but, but even contradictory outflows. That um, if, if it's one kind of plant, it's that kind of fruit. If it's one kind of water, it's that kind of water that is supplied and James says, and yet we find ourselves oftentimes with the conundrum of asking ourselves, where did that come from? And James is really setting us up um, by saying, well, have a look at nature. And when you have a look at nature, you would say that there's always a direct correlation between what is at the source and what is in the outflow. So how do we deal with this? And uh, Susan's given us a great lesson on that as, as we think about the fact that it, it's the heart, that there's something in there that, you know, you can tell yourself, I'm, I, I'm never going to say that again. What happens? The very next day, something else comes along and you say the same thing. Or you have the same kind of emotional, verbal response to something. And you, you say to yourself, I decided to stop that. And yet I can't stop it. And so James says, well, what, what is it with that? Where, where does this all come down to? I come to the teaching of Jesus. And in the teaching of Jesus, he um, very plainly and blatantly gives us wisdom. 
And James does the same thing. In fact, James is often quoted as the part of the New Testament that most closely resembles the very teaching of Jesus. That uh, scholars have gone through the letter of James and sort of marked out the parts of that letter that actually were sayings of Jesus or parts of the teaching of Jesus. And so we would do well to go back to what Jesus said when he says very clearly, but the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart. So there's the answer. Why did I say that? Sadly, because it must have been in my heart. And and there's the aha moment where it's it's not a matter of being decisive and determined not to say the same thing again, but it's actually to go back to the heart and ask, where did that come from? I mean, why were those words what came out of my mouth? As I think about that, and, and in, in, in the genre of wisdom literature, there's a great benefit in just dwelling on the scripture, a great benefit in, in mulling it over. Um, that was certainly the Hebrew way with, with sacred text, that the, the meditation of scripture was the sort of the, the lifeblood of the people of Israel. And David was a master at it in his poetic works, in his, in his hymns, um, where something that was maybe a, a simple statement or observation, he thought about it over and over again. And he says this to us. He says, I, I love your law. Uh, I meditate on your law day and night. And, and he uses all kinds of lovely sort of sensory human um, kind of experiences to say that it's just like food, it's just like drink, um, it's like fine gold, it's, it's all these things. Um, and he's just saying that there, there is such wisdom in God's words to us that we would do well to let them really sink in. So let's do that a little bit this morning and ask the question, well, if we ever find ourselves in a situation where we ask, where did that come from? Let's answer it for ourselves. So we know the big answer. The big answer is that everything's not right in the heart. And the bedroom is a mess and needs to be cleaned up. Some things need to be thrown away. Um, some things are just there and they're not necessary. Um, some things are there because somebody else put them there. <laughs> but nonetheless, um, they're there and they're working their way out. So. Why don't we have a look and see what it is that is in the heart? Um, this is not an exhaustive list by any means, and, and it would be fine for all of us to just go back and say, okay, l let me think of an example of something that I said that I really wish I hadn't said or wish I hadn't felt like saying or needed to say. And l let me just ask, what was the thing? What, what was it in my heart that I would, I would need to address so that at, at the end of the day I can say, okay, I won't say that again because I've been able to go back into the question, where did that come from, and deal with that. So what you said, and maybe this week you can think of an example. The wonderful thing about the wisdom of James is that none of us has to go very far until we find it practical, right? The tongue, all of us, and James says... Um, 
we can master everything. We can tame wild animals, but nobody can tame the tongue. In fact, he says, if anybody can tame the tongue, that person is totally a good person. So, you know, none of us gets to say, well, I never have that question, where did that come from? None of us can say, I, I never get to the point of saying, oh, I, I wish I hadn't said that, because we, we all get there. Where did it come from? What was in my heart? I, I think of the term resentment. And m maybe this, w this always happens in, in conversation with other people around us, right? Or in a situation where we're not alone. It's, you know, it'd be fine if uh, we could just vent all by ourselves in our room and nobody heard it. Then we can maybe in private have our little talk with ourselves and say, okay, and now I know where that came from. Let's deal with it. But unfortunately, somebody else probably heard it. And probably somebody else is involved in some way in the, the, the prompting or, or the cause of the thing that I say. So, so maybe it's resentment. Somebody has done something that I resent. And I find in a conversation with them that I can say something that seems to, to kind of ease my resentment. I resent that you have gotten something that I think I should have had. I resent that you got a promotion that I think I should have had. So I'm going to say something that will be resentful. And it may sound as though I'm not talking at all about the thing that has made me resentful, um, but it will be a way that I'm kind of evening the score and I'm, I'm saying, I resent you for this other thing that you did or that you got or that you have. And I'm going to express that by, by resenting you. And it, it may be muddy in terms of the way I express that. And the other person may not get it at all. They may not have any sense of how it is that what happened, what they got or what they were contributed to it. But if I do the work with the guidance of the Holy Spirit and say, okay, I, I believe what Jesus said, that whatever comes from the mouth came from the heart. So what I said was not a good thing. What I said was, hmm, the best way to describe it is resentful. And as I mull that over and go into my heart and the Spirit guides me, I begin to see what it is that I was resentful about. I begin to sort that through in, in a biblical way and say, did I have a right to be resentful of that thing? Did I really understand the terms that I now have sized up and, and become resentful about? So resentful may be the thing that's in my heart. Probably a very common one is, is the term hurt. I've been hurt, and when we are hurt, we lash out. You know, that, that's kind of a, a, a human thing. You hurt me, I'll hurt you. Um, we shouldn't do it, but it's, it's sort of the way things go back and forwards. 
But in deep ways in our hearts, when we say some things that we ask, where did that come from? And go back inside, we, we find that it came from being hurt. That maybe you've hurt me, and I've not had the courage to actually say to you what you said was hurtful, or what you did was hurtful. That would have been difficult to do. Maybe I even figure it was impossible to do. But the result is that something has gotten out of place in my heart, and I am a hurt person, and the very tricky thing is that quite directly you have hurt me. Um, so how do we have conversations where we can safely say to one another, what you said to me hurt me? And, and, and I don't want to retaliate. I don't want to hurt you back because that's, that's not good. And I'm hoping that I'm getting to the point that that's not what's in my heart for you. But what I'm dealing with is having been hurt by what you said or did. And so um, I want to forgive you for what you did. Uh, it gets awfully complicated, doesn't it? You know, when the person doesn't know that they've hurt you, and now they do know that they've hurt you. I had, I had a person phone me quite a long time ago, and she said, I need you to know that you did some things that hurt me. And I said, I, I, I'm not aware that I've done anything to hurt you, so you should tell me. And she had kind of a litany of things that she perceived me to have done that hurt her. Now, the dilemma there is, should she have told me that? Because I didn't do... In my view, I didn't do those things on purpose. I, th I think I didn't even do some of those things, so here I am being defensive. But she was hurt. And so she needed to say to me, you hurt me. And she needed to forgive me for the way in which she perceived I had hurt her. And I needed to let her forgive me. I needed to find in that kind of a scenario, I needed to find how it was that what I had said or done actually was translated into hurt for her. I needed to make sure that I was as careful as I ought to be when whatever those topics were came up. But again, it was, it was a hard um, and a messy kind of a thing. But nonetheless, inside a heart, was hurt and she needed to express her hurt and she did it in a biblical way she could have tried to hurt me back but she didn't she was honest about her having been hurt and communicated it in as careful a way as she could and then she felt better and I felt worse because that's how it goes right maybe there's resentment in my heart that is the answer to the question, where did that come from? Maybe there's hurt. Maybe it's, it's just a matter of self-protection. That in some way or another, I'm vulnerable as a human. Uh, I'm, I'm broken. And when someone has said something to me 
um, that seems to threaten my identity, maybe my performance, you know, maybe my worth, whatever it is. Um, I might put up a wall of self-protection that says, no, you're not going to do that to me. I'm going to speak back at you, and I'm going to word, use words back at you to protect myself because I don't want to be hurt further. I don't want to be threatened further. And so I will speak back what's in my heart, which is a, a, a great desire to protect myself. Uh, we are vulnerable. We guys are particularly vulnerable. And we guys are particularly self-protective, maybe. And all of us um, would be the wiser if we could go into our hearts and ask the question, well, if that's where it came from, why do I have a need for self-protection? And, and where do we go in Scripture for you know, resources or for guidance except to the person of Jesus and say, look, did he ever protect himself against the onslaught of criticism or violence? Or He never did. So what was there about Jesus that didn't find any room for self-protection? Well, it was his servanthood, wasn't it? It was his, it was his deep love and, and servanthood where when you were a servant, you realize that it, it really doesn't matter what happened to you. It doesn't matter what anybody says. They can't make you any lower than you already are. Now, we are not allowed to treat one another that way. In fact, we are to view others as better than ourselves. So, you know, it, you can't go around saying, well, my ministry is to have people experience their, their servanthood. So I'm going to put them down. No. But maybe that's what's in my heart, is that human frailty that needs to protect itself against what seems to threaten its its worth. And if we really follow the example of Jesus and place his character in our hearts and become the character of Christ by the, by the work of the Spirit, then we get to the point where we, in a growing way, can say it doesn't matter what anybody says about me or to me. Honestly, my worth is in my relationship with Christ. I am loved by someone more than anyone else could ever love me, and, and that is I'm loved by God. I am treasured by God. Brendan Manning's lovely expression, your father is very fond of you. And so if I want to protect myself because somehow or other I'm, I'm just shaky, the place to go is not in speaking to others in a way that will make sure that we're protected against them. The way to speak to others is out of the gentleness, um, the delight of being a child of God. And say, it, it, honestly, it doesn't matter if you threaten me in one way or another because I, I'm not threatened as I become more and more um, aware of my sonship, my, my daughtership. M maybe it's disappointment that's in my heart and um, I'm 
speaking back or lashing out at someone. And the thing that's in my heart is disappointment. You know, maybe it happens in families between parents and children. And maybe you had these hopes for your boy or for your girl. And you find that, you know, family gatherings get rough and you find yourself saying things to that boy or girl. And afterwards you ask, well, where did that come from? And honestly, where it came from is disappointment. Maybe what you had hoped for, they've not realized. Maybe you had really wanted them, vicariously you wanted them to be what you had become. And you've not understood that this kind of um, disturbance in the relationship between you and your, your boy or girl is that you're disappointed in him or her. And so you say things that maybe you can rationalize and say, well, if she would listen to me and do what I say, I'd be more pleased with her. You wouldn't say that out loud. You would say, if she would do that, I think she would feel better about herself. I think she would make a more significant impact. But, but the truth is that inside there's disappointment. And we are all disappointed enough with ourselves that when someone lets their disappointment wear back on us, then we are condemned even farther, right? Where we have a legion of adults who spent their lives trying to please their parents, who, whose parents would, would disagree vehemently that, that they are disappointed in their kids. But the kids believe they are, and, and maybe they are. And parents struggle with their own sense of failure since their kid hasn't come to their expectation. Maybe it was because they failed as parents. And into the mix of all of that, there's this nonsense that spews out in words. And you say, where did that come from? Well, it, it takes time to sit by yourself and look inside by the guidance of the Holy Spirit and ask God where it came from. Deal with disappointment. Find what the better reaction to your boy or girl is than being disappointed in him or her. Find the delight that there is in that being your son or your daughter and you being their dad or their mom. And the, the Holy Spirit is the one who, who guides us through that and who, who works us through it. A couple more that come to mind. Um, quite honestly, sometimes there's malice in our hearts. We're just bad. And that's, that's not a shock because there's sin in us. And the sin in us is, is pretty much summarized by, by selfishness. And selfishness can turn into malice towards other people. Because I care about me, not you. And so malice may just be behaving in a way that's not careful or caring. It's a, it may be speaking in a way that's not careful or caring. But when it comes down to it, the reason that I said that and the answer to the question, where did it come from, is the rottenness in me. And that's one of the hardest things to actually fess up to, to look in the mirror and say, you know what? 
what you said was just run, talking to yourself in the mirror. And there's no explanation for it other than malice. That, that you had a malicious thought towards this person and you expressed it. And that, and that is the, kind of the, you know, the bottoming out of relationships between human beings. Malice towards one another. From the very beginning, Adam and Eve felt malice towards each other. That they would be willing to blame each other. And say, so it's not me. I'm fine. I didn't do anything wrong. And I'm a better person. But her. But him. But the serpent. And the truth is that malice was at work. And the hard work of the follower of Christ, guided by the Holy Spirit, is actually say, what I said, I said out of malice. There's no explanation for it. There's no reason for it. There's no excuse for it. What I said was bad and nasty and wrong, and it's not because of you. you didn't do anything. I shouldn't have said it to you. I did, and I, I need to ask for your forgiveness. Sometimes inferiority can well up in us and make us say strange things. Um, when we struggle with who we are, how we're doing, and we feel inferior to other people around us, then we might end up saying things that afterwards we wonder, well, where did that come from? And, and indeed, why, why did I actually say that? Well, again, why you said that was to try to even things out in terms of you feeling completely inferior. Uh, and you know, maybe your grades weren't what they could have been. Maybe your success wasn't what it might have been. Maybe you're not as gorgeous as you thought you would be, and maybe you still think you are. And all those things have made you kind of shrink down in yourself, and you feel inferior to others around you. And then that twists your head. It twists your heart into saying things um, that are not helpful to you and certainly aren't helpful to others. The last one, and, and it's these days a very salient one, is, is the matter of prejudice. And sometimes we will say things to other people out of the prejudice of our own heads. We will say things because they are of a different culture or a different color or a different ethnicity or a different religion. We will, we will sort of be cavalier in saying what we think we can say. Well, you people, what does that mean? It comes out of a, a prejudicial heart. Um, and and we, we can be careless in the things we ask and say um, in, in, in kind of innocent ways. We had a, a traveling group come and, and sing in our church in Toronto. And they had come from a Western Canadian school in a place that was pretty much all white. And our daughter had a great friend who was black. And I, I overheard one conversation when a person was talking to Alicia's friend and said, so where are you from? And Dave answered, Scarborough. The guy said, no, no, no. I mean, where are you really from? Scarborough. Where are your people from? Scarborough. 
You knew what was up, right? But this, this kind of sizing up, well, of course, our world is the right world, so anybody else that doesn't fit in our world, we can dismiss by the use of language that demeans them, and, and it, it betrays a darkness in, in ourselves where we don't understand, um, as James says, that they are people created in God's image. They are, as my mother-in-law used to say, a soul for whom Christ died. No matter who they are, no matter what they look like, no matter what they talk like, um, I have no right to judge out of the prejudice of my heart. And again, obviously these exercises aren't, you know, a 15-minute, okay, let's sort this all out, but they're a, a lifelong journey of always going back and asking the question, where did that come from? What more is there in my bedroom that needs to be cleaned up and needs to be sorted out? And, you know, the day we get done with the whole thing, it'll be the day Jesus is back for us or this life is over. And probably none of us will get to that day with the whole bedroom cleaned up. I, I've enjoyed over the years figuring out what people work at. And, you know, I, I give in to the, to the male habit of saying, what is it you do? Because I'm going to sort out things depending on what you do. But... The one conversation I had was with a young man in, in Toronto. And in, I, I just said, I remember where we were having lunch together. And I said, so what, what, is, what is it that you actually do? Well, he said, you know, I'm a geologist, right? I said, yeah, I, I, I do know that, but I, I don't really know what a geologist does. Well, he says, geologists do all kinds of things. But the way that I practice my geology is that I'm an explorational geologist and I travel to all parts of the world to find um, minerals uh, and to find a likely source for minerals so sometimes it's gold that he will be sent to a site and he will sample that site to him to find out whether there might be enough gold to mine or in his case, often it was for copper. And lately in the country of Namibia, there was a, a deposit of copper discovered, and he was able to sample that and then extrapolate from the sample how much copper could be mined and then where, where copper could be put to use. That'd be a fascinating thing to do. You know, where am I going today? I don't know, somewhere in Africa, somewhere in the Middle East, somewhere in... The South Pacific, and what am I looking for? Oh, today you're looking for gold. Today you're looking for silver, whatever it is. But you get the point, right? That in, in some of those sites, they discover a great deposit of gold or silver or copper or whatever it might be. In our hearts, um, there is because of what the Holy Spirit has done, because of what God has done in Christ, there actually is a deposit of wonderful responses. So let's clear the room out. Let, let's ask the question, where did that come from? When it's bad, and say, well, out with that. But let's concentrate also on the fact that in our hearts, something new has happened. That God has come 
to live in our hearts. Such a simple childlike thought that many of us perhaps through our, our life have said, this whole notion of Jesus coming into my heart, that, that's kind of silly. And then you get older and more mature and you say, no, it's not. It's actually powerfully true that the God of the universe lives in my heart. He lives in your heart. And when he came to live in our hearts, he changed everything. At least he set everything on course to change. So Paul, the apostle, says that if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. So God is in the process, and he's on the job of getting rid of the things that when I honestly answer the question, where did that come from, I realize it shouldn't be there. He's going to work with me and get rid of it. But, you know, Jesus told this seemingly crazy story about demons that if you sweep one out, they go back and get more. And and I think somewhere in the middle of all of that is put something better there so the demon doesn't get the opportunity to send others back. So I won't deal with that theologically today. But what God has placed in our hearts is the fruit of the Spirit. And I'll just end by reminding you of what Paul tells us about the fruit of the Spirit. Um, Because he says this is what God has really decided to come and bring to us. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. When the spiritual geologist comes and takes a sample out of my heart, what is it a deposit of in, in my heart that I need to draw on in those situations where the me that I'm not very proud of gives out something that is not at all impressive in terms of being a a follower of Christ. Instead of hurt or resentment or bitterness or malice or all, all of those things and more, what if when something happened what responds out of my heart is more like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, or self-control. Paul says there's no law against those things, you know. I love that expression. It, It means a whole lot more than this, but he's saying there's nothing wrong with these things. When, when, when someone um, takes the water and makes the baking soda, sorry to spoil the experiment, blow up, um, what happens when that water actually doesn't find baking soda but finds love and joy and peace? Alas, it's a wonderful scenario. And James says, so brothers and sisters, just... Be careful about how you talk to one another. He's going to talk about the fact that they apparently have fights going on and quarrels. And he says, where does that come from? Why are you quarreling with one another? But before he gets there, he says, 
what's in your heart that is coming out into the the, the deadly realm of the possibility of a, of a poisonous tongue? Um, one tongue, two ears, right? All those things again. Uh, and James says, it's not enough for me just to say, you know, be slow to speech, speak and slow to get anger. Um, he says, Let, let's go farther into that and say, you realize how powerful the, the tongue is? How much effect it has? How much damage it can do? And yet how much blessing can come from it? So it all, it all depends on what's inside. And let's encourage one another to uh, be the healthy people inside with, where our hearts are good and our responses to situations difficult and tremendous are loving and all the other expressions of the, the spirit who is in us. God bless. <laughs>